We climbed Everest. You know, we split the atom. We charted Walker across the ocean to come here. And we're blasting off into space to compete with the very best people in the world. So I think we're also, though, a country that is big enough and smart enough to face up to reality when we need to as well. That was Prime Minister Christopher Luxon in his State of the Nation speech that he delivered last Sunday, reflecting on the reflected glory we all get from our most intrepid and most famous predecessors. And he went on to describe Kiwis today as resourceful, reasonable and resilient, yet the country as a whole is fractured, fragile and lacking lost mojo. But the pundits mostly agreed that the new Prime Minister had found his mojo with his choice of words in that speech. In the Post on Monday, for example, Stuff's Andrea Vance said this. Yesterday's speech was good. Better still was the presentation. Luxon sounded like a normal person. And that made the paper's front page under the headline, Who Deprogrammed Luxon? The same day, business desk's Patrick Smelly was also wondering. With his reputation developing as a tone-deaf corporate gabbler, said Smelly, Christopher Luxon has looked for a while like a man in need of a decent speechwriter. His State of the Nation speech suggests either one has been found or Luxon is starting to find his voice as Prime Minister. Or possibly both. And while Patrick Smelly said that Christopher Luxon had come across as a disciplined and demanding taskmaster in that speech, he also said Luxon seemed like a bit of a scold when he said things like he would not apologise for tough love. Now, that's a concept people of Luxon's age will remember from the 1980s and 90s. It was usually used to straighten out teenagers for whom a little harshness was thought to be a good thing in the long run. On One News last Monday, TVNZ's Mikey Sherman, though, didn't see any of that as a big deal. Certainly yesterday's State of the Nation speech by Christopher Luxon was him giving the country a bit of a boot up the backside, and let's be honest, we all need that from time to time. But the thing is, though, not everyone was feeling that boot in the backside. On Newstalk ZB the same day, afternoon host Andrew Dickens was less impressed with what he called blame game politics. We got a lot of talk about beneficiaries and they were told that the free ride was over. And then in the end, there was an admission to reporters that the government is yet to explain how it would address and finance the solution to our woes. That wasn't part of the speech, that was at the reporter's time afterwards. And reporters did also do their best after the post-Cabinet press conference that day as well, challenging old international research on welfare dependency that was cited by the government rather than stuff that our own ministry had put together about this country. There's two sets of research that give different messages, um, but the statistics... That is the most, the strongest empirical evidence. But how? 70,000 70, more people on the job seeker benefit at the same time that we've seen a 58% reduction in the use of sanctions. That's evidence enough for me to be deeply worried about the number of New Zealanders not in work today uh, that we could be supporting to be. Uh, a life of greater choice and opportunities for I'm talking yep, specifically. Yeah, it's about principle, about principles, that you have an obligation. It should be about statistics, make... not principles. No, 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 it's about, no, it is about principles, because actually we have an obligation here in New Zealand to make sure that you're holding your end up. And having heard that, journalist Bernard Hickey published Stats NZ data showing that the proportion of 15 to 24-year-olds in work had actually steadily risen between 2017 and 2023, even among those with disabilities. And in her weekly politics newsletter on Tuesday, the Herald's Audrey Young pointed out information in Louise Upston's press statement that seemed to pass the media by. 
of almost 190,000 people currently on JobSeeker benefits, the Ministry for Social Development only has strong visibility over about 60,000 of them who are receiving case management, and extending that oversight to the other two-thirds of cases to see if they can work or if sanctions need to be applied to them, well, that would be a big ask for a ministry which, just like all the rest of the public service, has cut its budget. Now, while the Prime Minister was at pains to point out that this was about principles and sound finance as well, the Herald's political editor, Claire Trevet, said this. Choosing to make it the centrepiece of the post-Cabinet press conference was more about pure political theatre. But the fact it was largely theatre does not mean it's not good politics. But good politics for the National Party, Claire Trevet could have added. In this week's Midweek Media Watch, Hayden Donnell took a look at that, as well as coverage of the latest TVNZ opinion poll and the event that really rocked politics and the Pacifica community, the sudden and shocking death of MP and advocate Efeso Collins, just 49 years into a remarkable life. That and plenty more on Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Emile Donovan last Wednesday. If you missed it, you'll find it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or available for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on Tuesday this week, the Herald's Claire Trevet also pointed out that this week's instructions on benefit sanction enforcement were really just a stopgap measure before National brings in its own welfare regime towards the end of this year. But by Tuesday, the media had framed all this as a welfare reset, much as the government might have hoped. And fully seven days before the State of the Nation speech signalled tough love and sanctions to come, Jack Tame was pressing the Welfare Minister Louise Upston about this on the Q&A show and pushing for evidence that sanctions would actually work and whether she's seen the findings which cast doubt on that. You've read the report from the Welfare Expert Advisory Group? Yes, Quote, there is little evidence in support of using obligations and sanctions to change behaviour. Rather, there's research indicating they compound social harm and disconnectedness. What did that report get wrong? Yeah, so there's a range of research and, and I acknowledge that. Um, what, what did but, they get wrong about that? Well, as I say, there's a, there's a range of views around mm. uh, consequences. So what, did, but what if was you, wrong about that, about that line from the Welfare Expert I'm, I'm not group. saying it's wrong. It's a ra- there's a range of views. So you agree with them that, that, that there's little evidence in support of sanctions? There's a range of views. They have one view. My view, Jack, is mm. very clear. We have seen an absolute blowing out of welfare dependency. Mm. And what has been cast as a reset was initially just a one and a half page letter urging the Ministry for Social Development's chief executive to deploy more benefit sanctions and an accompanying statement. I'm not prepared to accept the welfare system we inherited where work-ready job seekers are forecast to spend an average of 13 years on a benefit and teenagers could become trapped on welfare for 24 years of their working lives. And those alarming numbers were echoed the next day by the Prime Minister on TVNZ's breakfast show. Now the average time that someone's on a job seeker unemployment benefit is now risen from 10 years to 13 years. And if you think about youth payments and people on youth benefits, that they're now on average going to be on welfare for 24 years. So if you're a young person who gets on welfare and the average time that you're now on welfare is 24 years, you're talking about someone getting to the age of 40 before they actually get their first job. So we have a broken system. But it isn't quite right that the average time someone's on a job seeker benefit is 13 years. That alarming stat isn't official, it's from a forecast by consultants about what might happen if current policies and social conditions persist. And these forecasts have been in the public domain since the start of the month, thanks to the New Zealand Herald, investigative reporter Alex Spence, 
and the Official Information Act. Now, previously, these annual reports were published annually on the website of the Ministry for Social Development until Labour took over in 2017, and they dropped out of sight and out of mind for the media. But, according to the Herald, the most recent report from the actuaries at Taylor Fry also said that the estimates are skewed by a growing minority of beneficiaries staying on welfare for a very long time. For example, 19,000 people receiving sole parent support and about 500 young people expected to be on income support for almost the rest of their working lives. Now, as we heard earlier, both Louise Upston and the Prime Minister said, when challenged by the media, that the swollen ranks of unemployed on benefits since 2017 was all the evidence they need. And this was how the Prime Minister put those numbers in his State of the Nation speech last weekend. And if we look at welfare... There are 70,000 more people on a job seeker unemployment benefit today than there were in 2017. And that's like adding every man, woman and child in Napier onto the job seeker benefit in just six years. But while a Napier's worth of new beneficiaries was the major focus of his speech, not so another city's worth of new citizens, described by TVNZ's Jack Tame this way last Monday. Dunedin. In 2023, new migrants increased New Zealand's population by roughly the same size as Aote Porti. And that same day for News Hub, Infometrics economist Brad Olson adding, I think, uh, a topaz worth of people every second month or so. Uh, we've been seeing that's uh, contributed to the largest population gain that New Zealand has ever seen uh, since the end of the Second World War. Those record immigration stats led the News Hub at Six Bulletin last weekend. New Zealand's population over the second half of last year grew at its fastest rate since 1946. The next night, TVNZ reported that the difference between births and deaths was now the lowest it's been since then as well. There were just over 19,000 more births than deaths last year. And you have to go back to 1943 in the middle of the Second World War for a lower rate. And that just goes to show that population growth is much more complicated than just who's coming and who's going in any given year. Not for nothing was an edition of the detail all about the record immigration stats last year entitled Our Messy Migration. And in it, RNZ business editor Giles Beckford said this. There's little coherence about immigration policy, I would think. Changing criteria for how we attract high net worth individuals and entrepreneurs here. Uh, at one stage we tightened it up, you know, more recently we've loosened it a wee bit, or we go and create another category. Some people would suggest and have argued in the past that we actually don't need an immigration policy, we need a population policy. A lot of it is knee-jerk, it is short-termism, the, the thinking that goes behind it, I think, is not connected. Now, the point of that episode of The Detail last October was that the surging immigration figures had barely been mentioned in the election campaign at that time. But last Sunday, TVNZ's Q&A show did zero in on the new record figures just out with the minister, Erica Stanford. They were unsustainable, she said, and there's going to have to be a reset here too. So net migration for the calendar year, 126,000 people. Is that a sustainable number? That's not a sustainable number. But I think you need to look at it in the broader context. And that included COVID closures, disrupting and delaying demand, and people who've come on short-term visas who will leave the country but haven't yet, Erica Stanford went on to say. And then she said this. Back to mm. 2022, the RBNZ and Adrian Orr were saying, we've got a supply problem, we desperately need workers. Mm. And they put a lot of pressure on the government who basically closed their eyes and opened the doors with a knee-jerk reaction. And we are where we are because of that.
but on the Herald's daily podcast front page last Tuesday, that struck the Herald's business editor, Liam Dan, as ironic. Labour was uh, came in sort of on a tightening up policy and ended up really loose. And during that tight period, National was crying out for more workers and saying they needed to loosen up. And now you've got National saying, um, well, we're going to tighten it all up. And, and you know, they'll, they'll say um, smart things about it. They'll say we want a more nuanced setting, more reactive and more able to, to adjust. And um, all these things are, are good and easy to say. But as I mentioned, it's very difficult. Well, a bit of bipartisanship probably would go a long way. But as Scoop's Gordon Campbell pointed out, before the election last year, National cited increased immigration visa charges as a source of revenue, which could help fund the tax cuts they campaigned on, along with foreign house buyers and taxing online gambling. Its election manifesto also called for new visas for graduates of top universities and global tech companies and even a one-year digital nomad visa with options for work and residence after that. And on top of that, five-year multiple-entry visas for migrants, parents and grandparents was in the manifesto, with options to renew for a further five years, and expanded international student work rights was in the education policy. And for its part, the ACT Party wanted to remove the work-to-residence category of the immigration green list, replace the accredited employer work visa scheme with demand-based pricing, and remove the cap altogether on resident visas for parents. And it was only the Auckland-based Indian Weekender newspaper reminding its readers this past week how investigative journalists late last year exposed profiteers, employers and agents, bringing in migrants who ended up living in terrible circumstances without work and who were, in Indian Weekender's words, proving a burden on the economy. Now in that long interview on TVNZ's Q&A show last weekend, the Minister Erica Stanford admitted that much has yet to be thought through for this immigration rebalancing, but... I've sent my officials away to start work on that. Give us a planning framework, Mm. understand what our absorptive capacity is and make sure that uh, our hospitals, our schools, our infrastructure are working with immigration so that we have better long-term planning. And that does sound sensible. But if today's surge is the biggest since the end of World War II, well, how did we do absorptive capacity back then? Well, in his daily publication, The Kaka, financial journalist Bernard Hickey pointed out the governments back then planned for population growth of about 2% a year by putting about 5 to 10% of GDP on infrastructure each year. But in the 1980s and 90s, Bernard Hickey said that fell back as tax rates were cut on the assumption of low to no population growth. Land taxes, estate duties and taxes on capital gains were also dropped. Bernard Hickey also pointed out that since 2004, our population has grown at a rate only a little lower than the previous population baby boom time between 1947 and 1967. Yet our infrastructure investment in the last 20 years has been less than half the rate of the baby boom years, hence the deficit that's a part of the state of the nation today. This month, the briefing to the incoming Immigration Minister Erica Stanford said that a Productivity Commission inquiry into immigration back in 2022 had made all this clear. But the Productivity Commission is set to be scrapped as part of the new coalition's first 100-day achievements, though that one was not one of the ones listed by the Prime Minister in his State of the Nation speech last weekend.